I'm Laura Dunshee, and it's a privilege to be studying God's Word with you each Wednesday. The book of Acts has just really come alive to me. Instead of being a then and there, it has become a case study for the here and now. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for inspiring Luke to record the book of Acts. Thank you for each account of believers demonstrating the effects of your redemptive work. May our study today reveal how we can more consistently and effectively witness to the gospel's work in our own lives, starting with our inner circle of family and friends, but not stopping there. May you move our hearts to explore and expand our sphere of influence to include the Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth you've prepared in advance for us to touch. Through Christ, we open our hearts to your will. Amen. So, our passage is lengthy this morning, and we'll start reading with me. Read with me at Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Well, that's it. That's as far as the Holy Spirit has taken me in the passage, and I'm not joking. That's over, it's been five months, and those five verses have provided really what can only be described as a total preoccupation. It's been a productive preoccupation, which began with a simple observation of how Priscilla and Aquila witnessed to and ministered to Apollos in verse 26. Some of your versions may say uh, that they took him unto themselves or took him aside, but my version said, and I didn't even know that other versions said it that way, for a long time. I had just been reading this and studying it. And my version says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, remember they heard him beginning to speak boldly in the synagogue with great fervor, and he wasn't saying anything wrong, but they saw a need. And when they heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Well, we're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila last week. Remember, he, they, these are Jewish refugees. They've been kicked out of Rome, all the Jews, believers and unbelievers. So we don't know where Priscilla and Aquila were in their faith in Christ. At, at that point, they could have been believers or they could have come to Christ while they're making tents with Paul. But either way, they're refugees and they're providing housing for Paul when he arrives in the trade city of Corinth. And by the time Paul leaves Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila join him in spreading the good news in Ephesus. We know that from Paul's other mentions of Priscilla and Aquila that these two became much more than fellow colleagues. He speaks of them in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, and in 2 Timothy. And we know from those passages that 
their home hosted at least two different churches, one in Ephesus and one that they built that came to be as when they returned to Rome. We know that they risked their lives for Paul at some point, and that they returned to Ephesus to partner with Timothy's ministry. Their passion for explaining the way of God more adequately was evident throughout the course of their lives, which brings us back to today's passage and their interaction with Apollos. Apollos, the Bible tells us, a native of Alexandria, a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, as Warren Wearsby writes, Apollos' message was not inaccurate or insincere. It was just incomplete. The Moody Bible Commentary says, quote, After hearing him speak, Priscilla and Aquila recognized his deficiency, but also his potential. Not wanting to embarrass him, they privately informed him of the way of God more accurately, whether that was in their home or just by taking him aside. But I figure it took a while, so I don't think it was just a sidebar. I, I prefer to see them at home over a cup of coffee or, you know, something. Not coffee if you're me, but coffee. And so they took him and informed him of the way of God more accurately. And the commentary continues, providing him with the complete story of the Messiah, which undoubtedly included the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word explained in the Greek means to convey information by careful elaboration, to lay out something. And once Apollos had a complete grasp of all that Jesus had done, the complete story, he became an even more effective apologist. In verse Uh, vigorously refuting the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, a true apologist. What I saw in Priscilla and Aquila's gentle interaction with Apollos really illustrated to me what it means to be a witness. In fact, their relationship models the intended progression of witnessing, empowered sharing of the gospel radiating outward. From Priscilla and Aquila's home The gospel went out with Apollos to Achaia and Corinth. And from there, the gospel traveled from those reached and went out from there and from there and from there to the utter ends of the earth. The first five verses of today's passage have caused me to fixate on what I'm convinced is a foundational element and theme for being the Lord's witness. And that is welcoming others into our lives and into our homes, living a life of welcome. So the book of Acts is packed with references to lives of welcome. Homes opened for the short term, a few days, or longer term arrangements, depicted by the phrases several days, stayed a long time. I don't know whether that's a comment on how it felt to the person hosting them, but stayed a long time, three months, an entire year, etc. So I thought we'd look through the first 18 chapters of Acts and look at some of those models of welcome. You can feel free to flip through. I will be reading each scripture too, so it's your choice. Acts 2, 46 and 47 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I really like this one. I mean, wouldn't you know that one of the first mentions of living a life of welcome includes sharing food? 
meeting basic physical needs for nourishment, for sustenance, and even maybe the occasional craving for a fudge brownie. But those feeding people definitely factors into welcoming guests into your home, refueling others. In Acts 5.42, it says, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Here, we see the provision of spiritual food, spiritual refueling. Living a life of welcoming witness means declaring Christ wherever you go, in the temple courts, in your house, in others' homes. Now to Acts 9.43. It says, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. If you'll recall, uh, Simon the tanner was hosting Peter. And at that point, Peter had his vision, which served as a catalyst for his aha moments. Those big aha moments. Aha. God's plan includes sharing his message to all people. Aha. The gospel of Christ will transcend national and ethnic barriers. Peter moves from being a guest of Simon the Tanner, a fellow Jew, to becoming a guest of someone he considered unclean just hours earlier. Think of this. The first Gentile believers were converted in a home setting. Living a life of welcome, this this passage made me really think about that transition for Peter. I mean, would your head not be spinning if you're Peter? You've had this vision, now you're in Cornelius' home. My head would have been spinning and might never have stopped. And it made me think about it, that living a life of welcome requires us to be open to moving from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And then having that become familiar and being willing to move again to another unfamiliar circumstance. Acts 12.12. This is Peter's miraculous release from prison. Uh, The song we sang about the chains falling falling off, you know, and being set free uh, was not my choice, but it was an excellent one. Uh, But Acts 12.12, his miraculous release, it says, when this had dawned on him, the fact that he wasn't having another vision, but that he indeed was standing in the street free, right? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So prayer was the main focus of this gathering. Mary opened her home and welcomed many people for the purpose of prayer. It doesn't say that she wondered if her house would be big enough for the many people coming. Because the purpose wasn't her house, it was prayer. Acts 16.15, this is Lydia's conversion. We know the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And it says in verse 15, When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. It's Luke speaking, and he's including himself, so he was in this group. She said, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Here we see celebration and fellowship with other believers as the genesis for Lydia's invitation. She wanted to be identified with the Christian community. Living a life of welcome definitely includes gathering to build our relationships with fellow believers. In Acts 16.40, Lydia's hospitality is revisited following following Paul and Silas' release from prison. 
Verse 40 says, After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This tells me that Lydia's life of welcome must have conveyed an open invitation to her new brothers. I mean, she certainly didn't send them a text while they were in prison, telling them that they could crash at her house when they got out. They just knew her life was a life of welcome. It conveyed an open invitation. We don't know much about the details of their stay. I mean, I wonder whether her house was tidy when they just showed up at her door. I wonder what impromptu meal she whipped together to serve. I wonder whether she had coordinating sheets and comforters, and if the towels were clean in the guest bathroom, or if some teenage boy had used them. (laughs) We don't know those details. We do know this. We know the outcome of their stay. Mutual encouragement. That's the true goal of opening your home to others. We won't take the time to revisit the jailer's welcome to the, beater, to the prisoners, the beaten prisoners, or the personal cost to Jason that he, that he paid, that, that personal cost that he faced just for housing and hosting Paul and Silas. Now that brings us to today's passage, Acts 18.26, <clears throat> which I've already read, but I really like it, so I'm going to read it again. You ought to hear it as many times as it's been reverberating in my mind. <laughs> which isn't possible. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, that's Apollos. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla and Aquila's motivation for engaging with Apollos was to explain to him the way of God more adequately. That's the ultimate purpose for all hospitality, sharing the way of God more adequately. Discipleship and mentoring relationships emanate from opening your life to others and opening your home to them as well. So the models in the first 18 chapters of Acts, from those models, we've learned that living a life of welcome will include providing nourishment, both physical and spiritual, declaring the gospel of Christ in familiar and unfamiliar circumstances, and gathering with believers for times of prayer, times of celebration, and just mutual encouragement. The relational characteristics of the early church are clearly illustrated in the book of Acts. They were sharing material possessions, meeting in homes, eating together, caring for one another, praying together, and encouraging one another. These characteristics have family written all over them. Lydia expressed a desire to be included in the family of believers, And then what I love about it is she followed up on her desire by taking action. She opened her home in order to develop that closeness, that sense of family. She didn't stand back and wait for an invitation to be included. She included the family in. She wanted it. She made it happen. The early church thrived on being membered with one another and becoming part of an extended family. So what has changed since Peter and Paul traveled as witnesses, making more witnesses from house to house. 19th century British church historian and scholar Edwin Hatch penned these thoughts about the beginnings of the church. Quote, For Christianity was, and grew because it was, a great fraternity. The name brother came to be the ordinary designation by which a Christian addressed his fellow Christian. It vividly expressed a real fact 
a Christian found wherever he went in the community of fellow Christians, a welcome and hospitality. The practice of hospitality was enjoined as the common virtue of all Christians. Notice that even almost two centuries ago when he wrote that, this scholar used the past tense. That's troubling to me. Christianity was a great fraternity. The practice of hospitality was enjoined. So how is the practice of what Hatch referred to as this common virtue morphed over the centuries? I am not a church historian. I'd like to give that disclaimer. But I really enjoyed reading some uh, church history and some commentaries on it and some analysis of it. And I'm just going to share kind of what I I learned. Uh, So please know that some of these are direct quotes, and I'll let you know when I'm plagiarizing so that so that you know. It's not from the heart of my immense knowledge of church history. As the church transitioned from a persecuted sect to the officially, officially recognized religion of the empire, Christian hospitality expanded to develop such institutions as hospitals, hostels, and monasteries. And initially, this was a great expression of Christian theology put into practice. However, most scholars agree that this led to believers beginning to excuse themselves on an individual level from the demands of hospitality. A supposition was created because the church had the means to provide hospitality to those in need, the sick, travelers, and strangers. Individual believers could consider the ministry of hospitality covered by Christian institutions. Here's an excerpt from Dr. Christine Pohl's book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. She says, Institutions of public service increased in the Middle Ages. Care became more predictable and increasingly separate from the church. By the 14th and 15th centuries, many hospitals in European cities had come under municipal control, a change which further distanced the hospital from its origins in Christian hospitality. The public and civic dimensions of hospitality, from hospitals, poor relief, responsibility to refugees, and even to later concerns about human rights and equality, those became detached from their Christian roots as the public sphere was increasingly secularized. At the same time, the domestic sphere, the home fires, became more privatized. So you've got the the public sphere becoming secularized and the private sphere becoming privatized. So the domestic sphere becoming privatized. Households became smaller, more intimate, and less able or less willing to receive strangers. Activities that were originally based in our households, work, religious training, religious observation, care for the sick, provision for the aging, care for strangers, those became based in their own spheres and separate institutions. Professionals within each sphere were paid to provide a service. And her comment is that recovering hospitality will involve reclaiming the household as a key site for ministry, and then reconnecting the household and the church so that the two institutions can work in partnership for the sake of the world. So I've been asking, I'll I'll ask you the same question I've been asking myself. Where are you in your current practice of hospitality? Are you Lydia, extending an open invitation? Or have you nurtured a culture of privacy in your life, viewing your home as a cherished retreat from the world? 
The culture of privacy first hinders our willingness to offer a life of welcome. As Christians, we need to adopt a biblical approach to opening our hearts and our homes, a biblical approach to practicing hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is a compound word. Now I'm back in my element. Elementary school, compound words, I can do this. Compound word, it it combines the word phileo, which is the general word for love or affection for people who are connected by kinship or faith, brotherly love, phileo, and the word for stranger, xenos, and you get a lover of strangers. Another form of the word is translated fond of guests. So lover of strangers, that's who God is. That's what he sent his son to express. And that's how the Holy Spirit leads us to live, as a reflection of the welcome we've received through Christ. The author of Hospitality, The Joy of Serving Others, writes, Hospitality is a reflection of God's nature. God is a welcoming God. He pursues and extends relationship, meeting needs and providing safety. And as we model a life of invitation, employing our resources to meet the needs of others, we provide the world with a picture of a much greater spiritual truth. God invites us all to his safe embrace. One scholar wrote, God's guest list includes a disconcerting number of poor and broken people, those who appear to bring little to any gathering except their need. The distinct characteristic of Christian hospitality is that it offers a generous welcome to the least without concern for advantage or benefit to the host. Such hospitality reflects God's greater hospitality, hospitality that welcomes the undeserving, provides the lonely with a home, and sets a banquet table for the hungry. Once we've accepted the offer of Christ's righteousness to cover our sins, we should want to demonstrate that love to others. Our response should be to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to share that love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Hospitality is love in action. Peter and Paul both experienced this love in action. In Acts, we see both men housed by others and both men witnessing boldly in each location. Their ministry stretched way beyond what is recorded in the book of Acts, and they each penned admonitions to their fellow believers about the practice of hospitality. I thought we'd look at just one passage written by Peter later and Paul later and what they say and revisit this topic, something that they benefited. Their ministry wouldn't have happened without the hospitality of others. So what do they say about it? Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9, he says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. He knows us all. He knows himself. He had a multitude of sins to be covered by God's love, by Christ's love in particular. And Paul, in Romans 12, 9 through 13, that passage, this passage, Romans 12, 9 through 13, is really, it's a manual on what it takes to practice hospitality. So I couldn't just read one little part of it. I have to read all the verses. So it beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12 of Romans. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, 
but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The Greek word for practice there can also be rendered strive for or pursue. Pursue hospitality. Look for ways to practice this love in action. Both of these passages are found within the context of teachings on love and on loving others. Peter and Paul emphasize the connection between practicing hospitality and a heart that's bent on loving others. Why are there so many passages of scripture dedicated to telling us how to love one another? I mean, it it stands to reason to me that surely as recipients of unconditional love, we should just get it and do it. During the sanctification process, um, which I find to be painfully slow in myself and at times excruciatingly slow in others, (laughs) which then only moves me back to how painfully slow and consistently slow it is in myself if it's excruciatingly slow to me, about others. But anyway, during that sanctification process, we obviously need encouragement to be imitators of Christ. Christian hospitality is a matter of obedience to God, an expression of his loving welcome through us. That's the very expression of love that Christ himself illustrated in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is a study all of its own, and we are just going to glean one thing from it. I'll read Matthew 25, 35 through 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And drop down to verse 45. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. The parable introduces the concept of seeing Christ in every guest. Let that sink in. What if we were to see or imagine the face of Christ in every person? How would that filter change our approach to practicing or pursuing hospitality? Now, every person, our view would be that every person deserves the most gracious and generous welcome possible, because that's a reflection of the infinitely gracious and generous welcome Christ has extended and continues to extend to each of us. Dr. Christine Pohl describes Christ's ministry on earth by identifying Jesus as the gracious host, welcoming children, welcoming prostitutes, welcoming tax collectors, and every other sort of sinner. It was kind of startling, she she writes, it's kind of startling and annoying to those who generally view themselves as the preferred guests at gatherings, that Christ was that welcoming. She writes, in his life on earth, Jesus experienced the vulnerability of the homeless infant, the child refugee, 
the adult with no place to lay his head, the despised convict. Jesus welcomes and needs welcome. Jesus requires that followers depend on and provide hospitality. The practice of Christian hospitality is always located within the larger picture of Jesus' sacrificial welcome to all who come to him. As believers in Christ, we are recipients of eternal hospitality. Our eternal security depends on his faithful, eternal hospitality to sinners saved by grace. Do you think of yourself as continually welcomed by the triune God of the universe? Practicing hospitality should just be a natural way to connect our theology with daily life, sharing our time and the intimacy of our homes with a heart of love and compassion presents a natural opportunity to share Jesus Christ as the source of that love and compassion. Now that phrase, sharing the intimacy of your home, could really be code for allowing others into the imperfection of our homes. For instance, the intimacy of your home might reveal children who don't comply the first time they're told to do something. Or it could reveal contentious, crabby words being spoken between children or spouses or all of the above at some moment in time. It could reveal untidiness, unmade beds. Mine's not made today. Uh, breakfast dishes undone check, and folded laundry waiting to magically walk to the owner's rooms. Yeah, that's along the baseboard in my master bedroom. It used to be on the couch right inside the door until we moved the laundry room upstairs. So the intimacy of your home, when you begin to exercise a lifestyle of welcome, if you have a desire to carefully project a perfect image, that desire is in jeopardy. Be careful. Once you truly exude availability and the willingness to listen and care, your image of having it all together will be seriously at risk. The only detail that really matters when I share the intimacy of my home is this. Did I see Christ in them, and did they see Christ in me? Our call is to welcome as Christ welcomes to live out our calling by serving each person as if he or she were Christ. Now, I'm a rather concrete learner. That's why I taught elementary school and not high school calculus. I'm a concrete learner. So I'm thankful that in addition to the New Testament models and instructions that we've gone over, God also gives us tangible experiences to expand our understanding of this life of welcome. In our remaining minutes, I'd like to bear witness to just a fraction of what I've learned from the obedience of other believers, their obedience to pursue and practice hospitality. And some of you in this room, I've learned much from some of you. You know who you are. You've practiced in front of me. I've been in the intimacy of your home, and I still like you. And you've been in the intimacy of my home, and I hope you still like me. There's definitely, there's even a load of laundry that's not folded right now. It's just dumped. And I pulled something out of it for my son this morning. So how do you like that? Hmm? 
true words. My personal learning curve began when I was born into a family truly in pursuit of hospitality. If you know my mother, uh, she pretty much goes from planning one opportunity to have people in uh, to another. It's just how she works. I don't know whether it's compensation for being an only child. I don't know, but she just likes to plan to have people in, not over, in. That's what she calls it. And of the hospitality experiences offered in our home growing up, without a doubt, the strangest and most spiritually fulfilling were the times my parents volunteered to host missionaries, evangelists, pastoral candidates, uh, college choir members, etc. This practice of sharing our home with people we had never met and might never meet again failed to ever lose a sense of both a little weird and a lot of wonderful. The universal reality of God's truth is utterly and completely striking when it's spoken from the mouth of a stranger, when they say the same truth that you've been hearing in other settings, in familiar settings. Now that truth is coming from an unfamiliar setting, and it's the same. There's nothing quite as striking. When your life intersects with another believer's life, wonderful conversations occur. These times allowed me to share life on life. I saw beauty, I saw dysfunction, and I saw God's restorative victory in all of it. The same can happen for any guest when exposed to our lives as believers. Hopefully, the fragrance of the Lord at work in our lives will serve as an attraction to God's love and salvation. And our intimacy of our home won't be a distraction because the fragrance will supersede it. The Lord has been faithful to continue placing women of welcome in my path. I'll mention two family friends. One friend, Cornelia, allowed me to practice my maternal instincts on her four children. And the other friend, Lori, allowed her children to practice their skills on my children. So over the course of decades, we've shared the intimacy, big time, of each other's homes and still love each other deeply. Here's just one takeaway from each of these friends. Cornelia, her life is undeniably lived as a life of welcome. She radiates genuine excitement no matter when you arrive. I mean, it doesn't matter if her kitchen has been under construction for a lot longer than it was supposed to and she is still washing her dishes in the bathtub while raising four children. She doesn't care. She lives life as an illustration of invitation. Her face lights up to express, my day just got better because you are here. Your arrival is the best thing ever. That's what you get. She welcomes without reservation, and no reservations are required. Lori, I know often we're unwilling to serve as a host because we've not anticipated opportunities. Well, Lori is a planner of generosity. She plans ahead for contingencies, to be ready to prepare a meal on short notice, as Lydia did, or to invite a guest to stay the night, or to open her home to others in some less conventional way, say, perhaps allowing her teenagers to host 30-plus children in her backyard each summer for camp fun in the sun. 
Lady 30 children, ages 2 to 8, will provide a host of contingencies. That requires a ton of margin in your life, and that requires being a planner of generosity. As Alexander Strouch says, hospitality is a concrete, down-to-earth test of our love for God and his people. Love can be an abstract, indistinct idea. Hospitality, no, it's specific and tangible. It fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions, our family, home, finances, food, privacy, and time. If we see Christ in every face, our circle of responsibility, our circle of care, our, our ministry of hospitality should expand. And as I've been thinking about this responsibility to extend the welcome I've received, something Eric Bobbitt said during his teaching time last semester keeps ringing in my ears. It's been a little annoying, but really purposeful. He said, who would you not welcome into your home? And I thought, oh, Eric, you pegged me entirely. You've got me wrong. I, I literally was thinking, yeah, that's not me. That's not me. And, and he went on to say, no, really. There is someone you would not welcome into your home. And he went on to describe this standoffishness as hoarding God's blessing and grace being stingy, blocking the flow of the effects and ramifications of God's grace and blessing. As his challenge bounced around in my heart and my head, I received an email from my niece, Hannah. She spent last semester living with a host family while studying abroad in Honduras. I want to read her words as a conclusion because I simply could not have manufactured a message to correspond any better with what we're considering today. It was written following a two-week unit of study where she traveled from Santa Lucia to a remote village in a crime-ridden region of the country. I should say a more crime-ridden region of the country. And on November 17th, she wrote, I went to a wedding last week, a wedding for two people I had never met. Only a few days after arriving in the town of Mangulili, I was wel warmly welcomed into a home and was enjoying freshly cooked tortillas and beans when my host extended the invitation. The bride and groom, they said, had heard we were in town and wanted us to feel welcome. Wedding ceremonies aren't always a common practice in smaller towns like this because they're so expensive. In fact, they're somewhat rare and a really big deal. So, of course, an invitation is costly and also a big deal. On the day of the occasion, everyone who was invited got up early and started preparing. They killed a big cow, washed down the streets, and pitched tents. They decorated the church. My friend Emily and I were ushered into the house where we were given dresses to borrow, and the bride's friends painted our nails and curled our hair. I remember thinking, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing but be a burden to you. There's a drought, and I'm using your water. But nonetheless, we were honored guests. And when we walked into the church that night, it was as if the town had been transformed. Everyone was dressed their very best and smiling. You wouldn't have known that only hours before the electricity had gone out again and the latrines had been clogged. No one talked about unemployment or the water crisis or sickness or violence. The ceremony was beautiful. Afterwards, everyone hugged each other. Everyone hugged us too. Then there was food and food on food on food. People saved every precious bite they didn't eat and took it home with them. We walked home smiling with full, with full stomachs. 
When I got back to my room, I saw my notebook with its scribbled heading, Impacts of Immigration on a Community. I, a student, a traveler, had found myself in a community of people who know what it's like to leave home, to watch their mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters leave home. Somehow, I think they took to heart Jesus' words, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Welcomed me, not tolerated me or put up with me. Welcomed me. Like Jesus welcomes us to a wedding feast, in fact. We have a place at his table, an invitation that we do not deserve. He doesn't tell us that we're a burden or a drain. He doesn't make us feel like strangers or aliens. He dresses us in his righteousness, his perfect justice. Our world is full of refugees and displaced people right now, people who are driven from home by poverty, by violence, by all kinds of forces, people in our cities, on our streets. When we think of them, do we see them, think of them as a burden? Do we simply pity them a moment and move on? Or do we see them as wedding guests? Now, that's not a robust policy or a logistical plan yet, but it's an attitude of our hearts, and I believe a very important one. Who are the strangers in our lives, and how can we welcome them? Jesus, teach us and guide us. Open our hearts. This is my prayer. Pray with me. Dear Father, I join in Hannah's prayer that you might enlarge our hearts for others. May the reality of your unconditional love and the salvation found in Christ move us to pursue living a life of welcome. Encourage us to anticipate and seek opportunities to practice hospitality. May we become known as women whose hands, hearts, and homes are dedicated to the task of testifying to the gospel of your grace. We rest in your eternal welcome. In Christ's name, amen.